0: Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall, and welcome to The Meaningful Life. There is nothing more likely to make us stop, take stock, and ask deep and searching questions than the death of someone we love. Speaking personally, it was the death of my first partner 25 years ago which got me started on this journey, and my father's death at the end of last year has brought everything back into a sharper focus. So I've been looking forward to speaking to my guest today. David Kessler is one of the world's leading experts on grief. He's the co-author of two books with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, the famous psychiatrist who worked with people who were dying, and noticed they went through five stages. These books, which David wrote with her, are called On Grief and Grieving, which took Kubler-Ross's five stages of dying and applied them to grieving and life lessons. But today, we're going to focus on David's new book, Finding Meaning, The Sixth Stage of Grief. Well, before we talk about this book and Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, I want to talk a little bit about you. It's probably no accident that you became an expert on grief. What happened when you were young that set you off on this track for going around the world lecturing to doctors and police and first responders and people like me?
2: Well, thank you so much for having me. You know, I love the idea of this podcast, and I think that death gives life meaning. I mean, anyone who's tuning out going, I don't want to talk about grief. We're really talking about how to get the most out of life and how to live it fully in the strangest way that, you know, we don't always get until we're in it. So you're so right. It chose me more than I chose it. I uh, had a mother who was ill when I was a child. At a certain point, she got sick and had to go into the hospital that was hours away, the big hospital in the big city. And while we were there, she was in the ICU. I couldn't visit. You had to be 14. I missed it by a year. I was only 13. Some nurses snuck me in and others said, rules are rules. So as I'm there not getting to see her most of the time. We're at a hotel across the street. And at one point, someone starts yelling fire. Everyone runs out. We look up at the 18th floor, huge flames coming out, fire trucks pull up. And as they're extending the ladder, shooting begins. They realize this is an active shooter. It went on for 13 hours. And finally, my father got us back to the hospital. And a couple of days later, my mother died. We weren't able to be with her. So in the span of a few days, I saw first responders, police, hotel guests, and my mother dies and I can't be with her or see that. So it was just the most confusing, traumatic thing I'd ever been through. And I woke up in a world where no one wanted to talk about this. And the only advice I got was, be strong.
0: Mm, I was going to ask what sort of help and support did you get? And it sounds like sweet, funny Adams. (laughs) Zero. In fact, actually worse than help, because zero would have been better than just be strong, wouldn't it?
2: Right. And it's probably a negative zero because my father, for his own reasons, he was you know, when I tried to talk about it, he was like, no, we're not talking about it.
0: Yeah, my father, when my mother died, and that, I mean, I was in my late 50s by that time, but he never really wanted to speak about that death, even though it completely and utterly destroyed him. But he did not want to talk about it. So,
2: But see, now, as adults, we can look at it and probably go, oh, our fathers were in so much pain, they couldn't access it to talk to us or even access our pain. Like now we can look back and go, oh, it was about pain. But for me, I didn't know what that was about.
0: Yeah, and I had a whole range of help and support, which you obviously didn't have. So what do you think has been the impact of that on you?
2: Well, for a long time, I thought I was damaged and I thought I would be damaged my whole life. And I was just going to be in that world and just be a damaged person. And there was no language. No one had ever been through what I had been through. I mean, we know that's sort of a ridiculous thought, but it felt like no one had been through what I had been through. And it wasn't until years later when I began looking into this that I'm like, oh, my gosh, There's language, there's words, there's tools, you know?
0: And the world or the universe was kind enough to send you in the direction of somebody who was perhaps the most likely person to talk about death that there was going. Elizabeth Kubler Ross, how did your two paths cross?
2: I started out in end of life care. How can we help people die more peacefully? How do we deal with the grief? And there was a large conference in Egypt, nonetheless, that she was going to be the keynote speaker when I was working on my first book. And that's when she had her stroke and wasn't able to go. And I talked to her afterwards on the phone through her son. And I just said, oh my gosh, I'm such an admirer. I wish we could have had a chance to be together and meet. And she asked me all about how Egypt was, and she told me how she's recovering from her stroke. And then I began to end the call with, thank you so much. I hope our paths cross somehow, somewhere. And she said, how about Tuesday? And (laughs) that began the relationship.
0: For people who don't know, let's go through her five stages of grief, because She was the first person to really look at the dying process in detail. So, the first stage is denial.
2: So, the first stage is denial. And I just want to put the disclaimer out there. While we're going to call them the first, the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth, they do not have to happen in that order. And they're not linear, and grief is very messy. I want to throw that out. So, denial is the I can't believe this is happening. I can't believe they're gone. I just, I can't believe this. And we can't believe it because we literally can't believe it yet.
0: Yeah. yeah. I mean, when my when my sister phoned to tell me my father was dead, even though he had been ill, even though he was in hospital, even though he was 91, I sort of needed her to repeat the sentence again because it I'd heard it, but it just didn't really register with me. It just didn't seem possible.
2: Now, here's one of the things to say about it. Denial is not bad. The thing is, if you took in all of the pain of your loved one dying, for anyone listening, if you could take all the pain in at once, we would get on the floor and never get up. We couldn't function. Denial is a really healthy coping mechanism. It sort of gradually gives it to
0: us. And then the second one is anger. Right.
2: And anger is disliked by our society because we have such poor role models. You know, most people will tell me how they had anger demonstrated in their childhood in, you know, the most horrific ways. And I'll say, no wonder you don't want to get angry because that's what you think anger is. So when we talk about anger, we talk about this idea of anger being pain's bodyguard.
0: Ah, that's interesting. Anger is pain's bodyguard. Right.
2: We see the anger, but the anger is really about the pain underneath.
0: And it stops you feeling it when you're really angry as well, isn't it? You sort of go out there and shout at people and, you know, at that moment you feel energised and you don't actually feel the pain.
2: Right. It's a fuel. And so it's really challenging in that way. And I tell people, here's the advanced class. For anyone who wants the advanced, really, you're going to try this on. The next time someone in your life yells at you and they're screaming at the top of their lungs, if you can sort of stop and go, it looks like anger, but it's really pain. Now, the magical thing about that is the moment you realize it's pain, we change. Because, like, if you're, at, you know, Andrew, if you're yelling at me and stuff, I can go, oh, yeah, well, what about you? And here's what you did, and I get defensive and all that. But if I realize, wow, Andrew's really yelling, he's in a lot of pain, all of a sudden, instead of becoming defensive, I find compassion for you.
0: You're talking about the really advanced Yeah, because
2: that's hard to do with people in our lives, especially our family.
0: How's about a triple advanced thing, saying, thank you for showing me your anger and trusting me with it?
2: Well, here's the weird thing about me. There's so many times in my own life I try to help people express their feelings, even if that feeling happens to be anger. And once in a while, someone will just get angry in my presence or they'll really blow up or something and literally, I'll applaud and I'll be so thrilled and they're caught off guard.
0: (laughs) I haven't done that one. I I think I'm going to give them a round of applause too. I think that's a lovely move. Let's go to the next one of our stages and that is bargaining. Tell me about bargaining.
2: So bargaining before death is the deal-making you know, please, God, if I can have them for five more years, I'm going to be a better person. I'm going to go back to church. I'm going to be more honest. I'm going to volunteer. After death, it becomes the what-ifs and if-onlys.
0: And then we have depression.
2: Depression, it's a really fascinating thing. We have interchanged depression with sadness. Think about it. Kubler-Ross was really talking about sadness but we don't even use the word sadness anymore. Oh my gosh, we got some bad news at lunch. We were so depressed, but we're okay now. Really, you went into a full depression at lunch and then you came out of it by dessert. That's amazing. No, you were sad. And the thing is, of course we're sad. Of course we're sad. Why wouldn't we be? And can we allow that?
0: And it does sort of this is speaking for somebody who's going through uh, grieving at the moment, it can sometimes ambush you. And I think that's what is the shocking part, the sadness. You know, everything seems to be okay. And then suddenly you see something or you remember something or you think, oh, which house did my great-grandmother live in? And you suddenly realise that the one person who could actually answer that question is no longer alive and you're overwhelmed with the sadness. And I think that's what makes it so difficult, is it just comes out of the blue.
2: Because we expect it to be neat and tidy and on our terms. And Mm. our feelings don't work that way, you know? They come up when they come up. People are surprised when I say, oh, that was a grief burst. They're like surprised that there was a name for it, that, you know, when you're at work, something came up and you burst into tears. That's a grief burst. And in my world it's a very normal thing when you don't know those exist you don't know what's happening and you think something's wrong with you and you're apologizing to everyone.
0: And then we have I think the most misunderstood of these five stages and that is acceptance. Now this doesn't mean that we're okay about and for the loss, it. For anyone listening
2: I'm going to give them the backstory on the stages in a moment. So if you're like you hate the stages I'm going to give you the backstory or if you love them I'll tell you that.
0: I'll confess, I don't like them. I mean, I found them incredibly unhelpful when I first went through it. But I think that's more because of the way they've been reported rather than the actual idea. Right. So tell me first about acceptance, and then we'll do the backstory.
2: So acceptance is so misunderstood because of two reasons. We think there's one big acceptance, and there's a million. When you're arranging a funeral, you're finding a little acceptance. When you're attending a funeral, you're finding a little more acceptance. So there's a million moments of acceptance we have to deal with. The other thing is people think as you find acceptance, the grief is ending and acceptance had a finality that Elizabeth and I never meant it to have. You know, when we talk about the stages, first of all, what Elizabeth Kubler Ross did that was so profound is she said, these are observations that I've seen in dying people, and later we also see them in people in grief. They're observations. I've been watching the sun, and it seems to rise in the east and set in the west. Now, I think the misinterpretation is that people think she said, for everyone, here's when sunrise will happen every single time, here's when it will set every single time. And these are general observations. And by the way, if you read her original work, there's many, many stages, more than five. I think the media wanted five easy steps to come up with, which is why it was that way. And when we talk about those stages, for people who are just thrown into grief, And they're like, I think I'm crazy. I don't know what I'm feeling. What's going on? Literally, when that's happening, this idea that there's a loose scaffolding called some stages is sort of so helpful to some people. But the interesting thing is when Elizabeth and I wrote on grief and grieving on page one, literally on page one, the stages aren't linear. They're not a map for grief. There is no such a thing as one model for grief or a right way to do grief. In fact, there's no wrong way to do grief. So I think over the years, it's fascinating, you know, on my Facebook page, people will sometimes write, you and Kubler-Ross are just trying to neaten up this grief and make us follow your rules. (laughs) And I think, first of all, Elizabeth nor I should ever be described as neat. There's nothing neat about her or me. And two, the idea that there's rules is like a ridiculous concept for grief. So that's a little bit of backstory. And, you know, every chance I get, I like to clear that up. And Elizabeth herself, I would be sitting with her and a clinician would come in and sort of, Elizabeth, I have a case, I need help. And the clinician would give us the whole backstory for 20 minutes on this person and their life. And then we would wait for the question. And then at the end, the clinician would go, all right, Elizabeth, what stage are they in? And Elizabeth (laughs) would go, forget the stages, just meet them where they are.
0: And what made you feel that you needed to add a sixth stage? So hang on,
2: I just got to ask you, Andrew, does that make you feel any better or why don't you like the stages? Let's chat about that for just a moment.
0: Okay. Unfortunately, when I was dealing with grief, I was only aware of the book on dying. I wasn't right. aware of the book on grieving. Right. So I read the book on dying and it's an entirely different process dying as opposed to grieving, because death is final, whereas I mean, from what I've discovered, I you know, twenty five years into grieving and um I mean it gets easier but there isn't an end stop where you finally reach 100% acceptance. At least that's my experience. Correct. And in some ways, it was helpful to know that there was some kind of process. But I think because, you know, I'm afraid to say I wanted to get it over and done with in, you know, let's say a year, two years at the top. It was a lot of me putting my needs onto it. So it was much more about me than it was about the five stages, to be honest. You
2: know, if the stages aren't for someone listening, no worries. Grief is an organic process. You know, I tell people, you come from a long line of dead people. Every ancestor you have had (laughs) has died, and they did it without the stages, and they grieved without the stages. So if it's not your cup of tea, just no big deal for anyone. I want them all to know that. And Elizabeth would say that herself. She would be like, you know, just be. Just no one has to tell you how to do this.
0: Now, you dedicate finding meaning, the sixth stage of grief, to my son in heaven and my son on earth. I really had a lump in my throat when I I read that. So I'm guessing that your son's death played a a big part in the writing of this book. Am I, am I right about that?
2: You are. My younger son, David, five years ago, died unexpectedly. And you know, I had thought, oh my gosh, I had this life with shooting and mother dying and my big grief was in my past. And I'm sure when I'm in my 90s, I'll deal with grief of friends again. I never thought I'd be dealing with grief again personally on such a profound level. And when he died, afterwards, I I wanted to write a note To everyone I'd ever counseled, especially parents, and said, I didn't realize how bad the pain was. Mm. I think we don't get the intensity. And I don't expect, you know, I don't think a professional or anyone else would get it until you're there. So it was brutal then. And still, there's times it's brutal now. But I had to do everything I told people to do. I had to go to grief counseling. I had to go to a grief group. I sat in a grief group, took out my contacts, put glasses on, put a baseball cap in, and I went to a grief group and sat there five feet away from a table with my books on it. (laughs) And I couldn't tell anyone that's me because I couldn't be the grief expert. I needed to be the father who was in grief.
0: Did you allow yourself to be that? Well... It wasn't
2: easy, but I did. And I kind of had no choice. You know, it's like, when are you in pain? When the pain's, you know, wants you to be in pain. I mean, that's sort of it, it runs the show, not us. And as I began to, you know, notice I was approaching everything as a father in my pain. I also had that little voice that was the grief expert. And I would go, oh, yep, you're in denial. You can't believe he's gone. Oh, yeah, you're angry. Oh, there you are. You're bargaining. Oh, yep, there's depression. There's a little acceptance. But as I began to think about accepting this someday, I thought there's no way I want to find more. I just can't stop at acceptance. Mm. And I wanted to find something. And for me... I had always been curious about meaning and Viktor Frankl's work and man's search for meaning and how do we find meaning. And I had seen it. So many people in grief hated the idea of meaning. And I was curious about how does all this work together? So I began to talk to people who their spouse had died, their child had died, the parent had died, a sibling. A huge tragedy, and they went on to find meaning, and it fascinated me. I think one of the first things I learned that's a confusion about it is people will say, there's no meaning in a horrible death. There's no meaning in a tragedy. There's no meaning in a pandemic. And I'll go, you're correct. There is no meaning in a horrible death. Meaning is in us. It's what we do afterwards. And so I found meaning began to give me a cushion. And it's interesting, as I began talking about it, people would go, well, that's the sixth stage. And as much as I kind of went, oh, no, not the stages again, (laughs) I also thought, oh, this could be a chance to once again talk about the stages and kind of clear them up one more time because like you said some people read this book or that book and they didn't read the and I thought let me just address this. And the Kubler-Ross family and foundation was so generous to allow me to add a stage to Elizabeth's iconic stages.
0: Certainly for me, when I lost my partner, it did start making me ask questions that were meaningful questions, like, you know, what is the meaning of life? What am I going to do with the rest of my life? Why did this happen? Those are all questions that lead to meaning, aren't they? They are.
2: And they're actually questions we might all want to ask anytime. You know, death is an accelerator.
0: And you have a wonderful question in your book. And that is, what is meaning? You know, here I am, I've done over 80 episodes of The Meaningful Life, and I've never actually stopped and thought, what is meaning? So help me with this.
2: Well, I think each of us defines our own meaning. I think what's meaningful to me wouldn't be meaningful to you. So I think that's one of the catches about it is, I want to make sure I don't put a meaning on it, you know, for you. And I think that's each person to decide what's meaningful today, this life, this week. What's meaningful?
0: So you've broken this sort of whole topic down into seven points, and I think that would be really useful to go through. And we've been through the first one, which is meaning is relative and personal. The second one, and this is just so true, is meaning takes time. Tell me about that.
2: You know, I think when we're in pain, we're like, okay, meaning would be better. Let me go there. And you just want to avoid the pain and get to the meaning. And the truth is, you have to give it time. It might take months. It might take years. But you have to
0: authentically find it in its own time. Now, this is an interesting one. Meaning does not require understanding. So there's an organization
2: called Mothers Against Drunk Driving. A woman's daughter had been killed by a drunk driver. She has gone on to save thousands of lives, maybe millions. She's found great meaning. She's never going to understand why her daughter died. I'll never understand why my son died. Even though we can find meaning, people sometimes get stuck that you've got to understand. And
0: I don't know that we do understand. And the next thing you say is whatever meaning you find, it's not going to be worth the cost of the loss.
2: Yeah, going back to that example of the woman who started Mothers Against Drunk Driving. Amazing meaning, helping so many people, saving so many lives. She'd still rather have her daughter back. It's never going to be worth the cost. You'd rather have the person back.
0: Loss is not a test.
2: Yeah, the challenge, I think, in our modern world is we try to make sense of loss oh, it's a test, it's a blessing, it's a curse, it's this, it's a challenge, whatever it is. The reality is loss happens in life. Meaning is what we do
0: after the loss. And the next thing you say is you have to find your own meaning.
2: Yeah, you know, so many people like, here's my brother, he's struggling, David, can you help him find meaning? No, you can't find your brother's meaning for him. Your brother has to find it in his own way and in his, his own time.
0: Surely you can sort of help by asking questions and listening to people.
2: Mm, I think we still got to do it on our own.
0: Well, I think it's actually quite good to have somebody there al- along the ride to support you on it, but
2: Well, well, yes, but as long as they don't have an agenda of Andrew, I got to get you to meaning. Do I think you should have someone on the road with you? Absolutely. But If their agenda is get you out of pain, get you to meaning, sometimes they're just trying to make themselves more comfortable.
0: Mm, Yes. Because Andrew, your
2: grief makes me uncomfortable. Find meaning.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, David. You're so kind. You're welcome. Meaningful connections will heal painful memories. Yeah, sometimes when people get
2: stuck over time, they just stay stuck and lost in the painful memories. And there's so many meaningful moments that can help with those memories, so that we're not replaying the bad ones. You know, we don't want to revolve, we want to evolve.
0: Uh, This is something that I I thought was interesting reading your book. Is there a different grieving styles? What, What are the different grieving styles?
2: Well, you know, I think the big takeaway from that is the recognition that there's a grieving style out there called practical grievers. And practical grievers are our type A friends who grief to them, is attending the funeral, they grieved. That was it.
0: Or cleaning out the cupboards.
2: Or getting back to work right away. We want to get them to try to feel more, and they often want to get us to feel less but they're just two separate grieving styles.
0: So the practical grievers and what you call the other kind.
2: Well, I don't like to use the term feeling grievers or whatever it may be, but it's sort of the practical grievers aren't having these discussions. they you know, they're <laughs> back at work. And so all the rest of us are the ones having the conversation.
0: I was going to say, neither you nor I would fit into the practical. Right, well, right. at least I certainly wouldn't fit into the practical grieving category.
2: Right. And, you know, someone might go, who's listening? Oh, I'm a practical griever. No, you're not. Practical grievers aren't listening to podcasts when they start talking about grief. You know, if you say to a practical griever, what's grief? They're like, you go to the funeral, you cry, boom, you're done. That's your grief work.
0: So what's the first step in finding meaning then? Well, the tough thing is, is
2: it is excavating the pain and allowing the pain. One of the things I researched, I never thought I'd be researching this in my life, was buffaloes. And buffaloes, when they sense a storm coming, they run into the storm, thereby minimizing the time they're in the storm, they're in the discomfort, they're in the pain. Humans, on the other hand, we get a glimpse of the pain of grief and we want to run the other direction. Spending 30 years keeping it three feet behind us. And the first thing is allowing the pain, allowing the feelings, not judging it, but just allowing it. It's interesting when I say not judging it. people go, well, I don't judge it. I'll go, yeah, but you just told me you want to be further along. And they're like, yeah, that's right. I want to be further along. And I go, but that's judging that where you're at right now is wrong. Where you're at is too slow. You should be further along, (laughs) is a judgment.
0: So you excavate the pain? Yeah, you got to just dig it up little by little. What did you find as you excavated your pain over the death of your son?
2: I think a lot of different things. I think we find everything, and I did too, was old losses, regrets, guilt. You know, I always say to people, Guilt is grief's companion. You know, we'd always rather be guilty than helpless. I don't want to live in a world that's so random that people die. So I want to pretend, oh, if I'm guilty and I find what I did wrong, I could have saved lives. That will make me feel safe in the world. But the truth is, it is a random world and people do die out of order. And it is brutally painful. and you can't control it. You can't make sense of it. I think also, you know, my challenge and other people's challenge is to sort of begin to go from the why, why did this tragedy happen, to how do I move forward?
0: And how did you move forward? I think
2: by writing the book, by talking about it, by going to grief counseling, by sitting in those groups, by being the person in grief. You know. It's such a strange phenomenon. It's like, here's what I think the world of grief is. You are thrown into a dark room and you're in this pitch black room and you search everywhere and there is no light switch. There is no light switch to turn on the light and get you out of pain. Your friends are all yelling, just turn on the switch. (laughs) Just turn on the light. We need you to be out of the pain. And we're like, If I could get out of the pain and turn on the switch, I would. I can't find it. There isn't one. Now, here's the thing. What we really want is someone to go, okay, there's no light switch. You're in the dark. I'm going to come and sit with you.
0: This is one of the most beautiful things you say, and that is grief needs to be witnessed.
2: Yes. We're not meant to be islands of grief. It's meaningful for our pain to be witnessed by one other human being. We want people to see what's happened to us, what that person meant to us.
0: How could I witness you today?
2: Well, I think you are by being in the moment, by going where we go. We've all been with people who interview or talk, and while we're talking and we can say, by the way, there's a million dollars right under my chair. They're going to what they need to say and they didn't even hear us. So, you know, I think what we do to really witness grief is listen. You know, how many of us go, oh, okay, uh, you know, let me have Andrew quit talking so I can get to my next thing. Oh, what if I just really try to hear Andrew?
0: Do you think meaning has to have a spiritual element to it? No. And do you think that's one of the things that actually stops people from finding meaning? They think it's only under the spiritual chair. Yeah, because so
2: we're not talking about pouring pink paint over things. Here's the thing about meaning: people think, "All right, should I go start a nonprofit? Is it a charity? What 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 should I do to find meaning?" That's the big, gigantic meanings, but most of meaning is in the small moments, Andrew. This is a meaningful moment that you and I are having. We're sitting here talking about the hardest subject in the world, and people who might be listening have gone through the hardest moments of their life, and I find it so meaningful to just name this meaningful
0: moment. I'd sort of if you don't mind, I'd like to sort of try and get it a little bit less abstract and a sure. little bit more concrete. I mean, you have lots of stories from people in your book. Can you give us some sort of um examples of people you've spoken to and sort of small concrete things they've done that have been meaningful for them?
2: Sure, you know, I think that meaning can be a spouse who's died, and oh my gosh how their life changed your life. It might be gratitude for them. It might be their death changed you and you want to change the world so no one dies that way. I mean, it can really manifest itself in a million, million different ways. There was one woman that I talked to. Her child had died at like, I think, two years old. And she was really trying to convince me there was no meaning. And she had spent two hours telling me about her sweet son, Aaron. And she said, see, and that's why there's no meaning. And I said to her, oh, my gosh, I feel like I know a little bit about Aaron now. These two hours have been so meaningful to me. Aaron lives now. You know, our loved ones don't fully die as long as we remember them. Aaron's a piece of me now and always will be. I mean, look, she probably told me that story five years ago. And here I am still telling you, Andrew, that's meaningful. So there's a million little moments that we can find.
1: The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, And visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits.
0: Let me tell you about my Substack newsletter. I'd love my Meaningful Life listeners to subscribe. The newsletter is a mix of relationship advice and my thoughts about You can find everything at themeaningfullife.substack.com. So please do sign up. Details will also be in the show notes. Also, in the show notes will be all the details of David's book, his course, his website, and his groups. We'll talk a bit more about those in a moment. One of the things that we're now doing is inviting everybody to write in with something they'd like me to discuss with one of my experts. And I think I found an appropriate one to discuss with David. I feel envious of my aunt, who says she can still talk to all the people that she loved but who have died, like her husband, her daughter, and her sister, my mother. She often tells me that they are all with her in her kitchen, and from time to time she will ask them what to do. She will listen and they will answer. Since my mother died, I felt unable to speak to her, not even in my head. I feel cut off from her love and protection. It would be such a relief to be able to speak to her again. But even when I sat with her coffin the day before her funeral, I could not find the words. The best I could manage was thank you and goodbye. Since then, nothing. Perhaps I shouldn't need to speak to her. I'm not even sure what I would say, but somehow the silence is eating away at me. So, what were your thoughts when you read this, David?
2: It's interesting. It's a very simple and complex In its own ways. So, first of all, I would say to this person, you and your sister had a different relationship with your mother, and you are still going to have a different relationship. And here's the tricky part about what she's doing. She's comparing herself to what her sister is doing. Whenever you are comparing, you have left your heart and gone into your mind we speak through our heart to loved ones who have died, not through our mind. So she has to just release her sister. It really doesn't matter what her sister does in her grief. It only matters what she's doing in her grief. So that's the first thing. I think we find in life, comparing ourselves to others always makes us unhappy and doesn't get us close to where we want to be. I also think She's underestimating. I mean, she said, thank you, or she said,
0: thank you and
2: goodbye. You You know, even Kubler-Ross used to say, there's only a few communications that matter. And one of them was, thank you and goodbye. Those were two of them, thank you and goodbye. The other one was, I love you. So the idea that she said, thank you and goodbye, to me, is pretty profound. You know, I don't know what else. To throw in there that she should have said. The other thing is she might be giving death more power than it has. Death doesn't have the power to end a relationship. It doesn't have the power to end our love. I send my son love every day. I didn't quit loving him when he died. That's within her power is to send her mom love. If you're sending love and you're in your heart, It might change the communication for her, it might not. But at the end of the day, sending love to those who have died and just being present is all we can do. And, you know, I can't tell anyone why someone has dreams, why someone doesn't, why someone gets signs, why someone else doesn't. I mean, I think that's all a mystery. But the more we're just present in our own life, The more things happen.
0: So you say death doesn't end our relationship with our loved ones. How does the relationship continue?
2: I still parent my son. I still love my mother. I still love my father. I still think about them. I still talk to them. You know, my guess is for this person, maybe the talk is just too painful now. But if she can physically say goodbye and thank you, she can also say, Hi, Mom, I'm sending you love wherever you are. I do that with my son all the time. I didn't stop loving any of them on the day they died. It continues. Now, would I love my son to physically walk in the door and we hug each other? Of course, I would give anything for that. But I also don't stop loving him. I'm not going to give death that kind of power.
0: So tell me about the course that uh, you're going to be running.
2: Well, one of the premises that I really believe is helping is healing. And so many therapists went into this work because of they want to help others and they're making meaning out of something that happened in their life. So we have a grief educator course that's three months long, and people learn all about grief in order to help others and in three months they become a certified grief educator we have a huge mixture of clinicians and therapists who just realized in their counseling education they just didn't get enough grief and they weren't given tools there's also a lot of coaches and there's a lot of people who have gone through the worst moments of their life in grief and They want to go on and help others as peer-to-peer supporters. So it's a really beautiful course, and it's with me. There's not like a bunch of other teachers who are, you know, there instead of me. It's with me, and we get to work together, and we get to do practice things with one another. And we really try to make ourselves grief-literate and know the language. You know, there's something strange that people... On the outside, think, you know, what I do or what anyone who works in the field of grief does is pulls up a chair and says, here's your tissues, now cry. And they're surprised that there's tools for dealing with the guilt. There's techniques for dealing with the pain and so many different things like that that can help. So we really cover it. I mean, we deal with guilt and death by suicide and death by addiction and a parent dying, a child dying, a spouse dying, and really empower people to know how to help others in their world, in their community. So it's really an amazing course. I do it once a year,
0: and I'm so thrilled to be doing it again. And uh, we'll have the details on the show notes and the details of David's website, which has got the best name in the world for this topic, which is grief.com. and then you organize groups as well.
2: Yeah, I have this wonderful group called Tender Hearts, and it's an online grief group, and it's got a lot of people. This is not six people on a Zoom. It's got a lot of people. Some people come on and ask questions. Some people work with me. Some people are in the background with their cameras off, and we never know they're there. And We do all kinds of things. You see me working with people. We have Friday Focus, where we're talking about different topics every week. We do poetry and grief. We do music and grief. We even sometimes watch a movie together about grief. Online, we do it all online. And we have specific groups, so someone who's lost a spouse can talk to other people who've lost a spouse, or a child, or a mother, or a father, or a sibling. And it's really, it goes back to grief must be witnessed. We find our stories in one another, and when one person begins to heal, we all begin to heal.
0: I must come on one of those. I've got a a poem about uh, what I don't want at my funeral and what I do want at my funeral. So maybe I should join one of your sessions and we can do my poem. Absolutely. So, thank you for being a witness on The Meaningful Life. I have to ask you, what makes your life meaningful?
2: I think the people in it. I think the people in it and this amazing earth, this amazing world we're in, makes it meaningful.
0: The peaks and the valleys. Unfortunately, this is where The conversation has to end for most people, but if you would like to become a supporter of The Meaningful Life and get the bonus material and find out the three things that David knows deep down to be true, that uh, in a second we'll find out details. If you are listening on Apple, you'll be able to immediately subscribe. If you're on Spotify, you can also subscribe through them. And if you are not on either of those, here is details about how you can join in the Patreon link
1: you've been listening to the meaningful life with andrew g marshall you can follow andrew on twitter like him on facebook and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts Healy, sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza, and I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.